Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific region. I'm Sharon Bessel. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net based at the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Asia-Pacific's leading graduate public policy school. If you're looking to get a policy-facing role, there is definitely no better place to get your qualification. So go and check out our range of fabulous short courses and amazing master's programs at crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Now, most of you are probably sitting at home at the moment wondering how to fill your time. So this is a great opportunity to join our Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. It's a place where you can talk to other listeners, you can talk to the Policy Forum team, and very excitingly, you can get access there to Ask Policy Forum, the podcast where you get to ask the questions. On this series, we bring together our regulars from each podcast series and additional experts to discuss the questions that you want to know more about. You can ask absolutely anything, from serious policy questions including things around COVID-19 and all of the challenges that we're facing in terms of policy at the moment. Or you can ask questions that are perhaps a little less serious, but you really want to get an answer to. So if you've got a burning question that you want us to answer on the next, next Ask Policy Forum pod, get your questions now into our Facebook group. Today, we're going to be looking at the role of international organisations in managing the COVID-19 pandemic. And of course, the rapid spread of COVID-19 around the world is in itself associated with globalisation and the rapid movement of people. And we might expect international organisations to have a key part to play in responses. But the World Health Organisation has been criticised for its rather sluggish response and for not taking a firmer stance on China's handling of the virus. Donald Trump has blown a hole in the organization's budget after suspending US funding to the World Health Organization. International organizations and various fora around the world are also playing a role in attempting to manage the economic fallout of COVID-19. The OACD says countries will face the worst economic fallout since the Great Depression, so that's a century ago. The G20 has paused US $1 trillion towards the IMF's crisis fund. And the G20 has also promised to establish a global initiative on pandemic preparedness. So today, we want to ask exactly what is the role of international organisations in fighting this pandemic? And how can their initiatives be improved to benefit everyone? To tackle these fundamentally important questions, we have two fabulous experts to join us. 
And of course, they're joining us remotely. Dr Christian Downey is an Australian Research Council DECRA Fellow at the ANU School of Regulation and Global Governance. Christian's worked as a foreign policy advisor to the Australian Government's Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet and as a climate policy advisor to the Department of Climate Change. We also have with us Professor Helen Sullivan. Helen is Director of the Crawford School and she was the founder of the Melbourne School of Government at the University of Melbourne. So I'm absolutely delighted to welcome both of you, Helen and Christian, to join us today. Thanks, Sharon. Good to be Thanks, here. Sharon. So the World Health Organization and the G20 in particular have been widely criticised for their responses to COVID-19. The WHO is perceived to have been rather slow in the initial stages of the outbreak and the G20 has been criticised for seemingly lacking a clear plan for putting their proposals into action. I wanted to begin by asking each of you whether you think that this criticism is justified. Uh, Helen, perhaps we can turn to you first. No one comes out of of this scenario uh, without criticism, and you wouldn't expect uh, institutions uh, that are dealing with something that none of us have ever seen before um, to have managed it uh, without challenge. Um, having said that, I think there are some pretty obvious areas where um, there certainly could have been um, a speedier response, um, and in some cases, um, a certainly a more substantive response. And I suppose the the, the question about speed applies to the, the WHO. Um, you know, should they have declared it to be a pandemic much earlier? Um, and one can understand uh, the challenge that they face um, in that in previous occasions where we've had something akin uh, to COVID-19, um, to SARS, uh, there's been criticism of the WHO for acting too quickly um, and for uh, over-responding. So, you know, it's always a delicate balance to know uh, what the the right path to tread is. And um, I'm not entirely sure that uh, the criticisms to the WHO about being too slow are necessarily um, the the worst criticisms that that could be uh, levied at it. I think a bigger issue for me, at least, is uh, the failure of the G20 to actually come up with uh, a substantial and significant response. Um, you know, lots of claims to um, wanting to act, commitments that they're going to act, but comparing so far what um, how the G20 have responded to this extraordinary crisis with the crisis of uh, the global financial crisis of 2008, um, I think there's been some startling differences in terms of, of content. And so um, there's certainly uh, criticism to be levied there. But of course, all of this is against the backdrop of a pretty challenging international system uh, where you have leaders who are behaving in ways that uh, perhaps we've never seen before um, and where the normal rules of diplomacy and engagement are, are perhaps um, not the rules that are, are being applied. And so I think everybody's been caught off balance. And I think it has some really significant implications for how we think about the role of global institutions. Helen, there are lots of issues there that I, I want to pick up on um, and take a bit further. But first, Christian, perhaps just to, to put that same question to you, what do you make of the criticism, particularly the criticism towards the uh, WHO and the G20? 
Look, I think there's valid criticisms uh, towards both international organisations, but I think the important point is the one that Helen just made, and that is that right now the international environment is an increasingly uh, challenging one for multilateralism. I think we've seen with uh, the inauguration of President Donald Trump back in 2017 that the US, which I guess has once been the champion of this kind of liberal international order, um, has been calling into question the relevancy of a whole range of international organisations. Trump's uh, from year to year or month to month or even day to day seems to be tweeting against NATO or the WTO or the EU and, and now more recently, of course, the WHO. So for a lot of these international organisations who are largely funded by the United States, or at least the United States is often their biggest funder, they're caught in a very difficult position. They're kind of walking this tightrope between working with the US and some of the other big countries, but also uh, at the same time trying to hold their ground in response to, uh, you know, knee-jerk missives from Washington or other capitals. So for a lot of these international organisations, now is a really challenging time. That's not to say uh, that the criticisms uh, aren't valid uh, in some cases, but I think we do need to step back and think about the environment in which, uh, the political environment in which some of these organisations are operating right now. Uh, the G20 is a little bit of a different case. It's, of course, quite different to the WHO. It's a, it's a very informal body, uh, which I can talk more about later, but it's really just a meeting of the world's top 20 leaders, more or less. Um, now, it's been around for about 10 years, as Helen said, since the global financial crisis in 2008. And for most of that time, its legitimacy uh, has largely been determined by how successful it has been as a, as a crisis committee. That is, you know, how successful it's been at swiftly coordinating international responses to global problems. Um, it was widely praised after the global financial crisis for what it did there, mobilising finance, uh, reforming the banking system and so on. Um, but as you pointed out in the introduction, it's now its role in this crisis has been coming under increasing questioning. Uh, and I think we're seeing this right now, the, the COVID-19 crisis is a big test for the G20. Because should it fail in that role as a global crisis committee, then I think its its role going on going forward is going to uh, come under increasing scrutiny, and quite rightly. So let's perhaps look first at the WHO, and particularly focus on the recent developments as Donald Trump has uh, announced that. His country, the United States, will be pulling funding from uh, the World Health Organization. And of course, as, as you have both noted, this has significant impacts on the WHO because the United States is the biggest funder to the WHO. Of course, this pattern of behaviour of withdrawing funding from international organisations is not new for the United States, and it's certainly not new for President Trump. One of his first actions on uh, coming to the presidency, you know, almost four years ago, was to withdraw the United States funding to UNFPA. And we looked at that um, here on the podcast at the time when we spoke to the then uh, executive director of the UNFPA and discussed the very negative impacts on people's lives and human well-being that that funding withdrawal would mean. At the moment, we see Trump withdrawing funding from the, the WHO um, at the very time when that organisation's um, activities are 
particularly important. Christian, what do you think will be the impacts on the WHO's ability to tackle the crisis um, now that the US has has removed its funding? And might we see something like we saw in the case of the US withdrawal of funding to UNFPA, where other countries stepped into the breach? And of course, that happened at a time when uh, countries were more open to uh, sharing responses to problems, whereas within the COVID-19 challenge, we've seen borders going up. So, Christian, what what do you predict is likely to happen in terms of the WHO's ability to respond? It's a good question, and I'm always uh, frightened about making uh, strong predictions in this uh, in this really volatile political environment at the moment. But I, look, I think there's one key point is that the world, you know, should really, you know, it can't afford to turn its back on global bodies like the World Health Organization, especially when we're facing... Uh, I guess, one of the world's worst global health crises in living memories. What we need to be doing right now is strengthening them and investing in them, not cutting them off at the knees. So clearly, the US decision to halt funding, uh, temporarily at least, uh, is going to have a big impact on the WHO. Uh, I think the US makes up about 15% of its overall budget. Um, And then other big contributors, such as the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Germany, Japan, China, and Australia probably make up the rest of the top 20 funders. But the US's withdrawal is going to, is going to be a big, is going to have a big impact. It's also going to mean that the US will have less of a say, uh, should it withdraw that money, uh, in the overall direction that the WT, uh, that the WHO makes. And that's been one of the concerns, uh, from a number of academics and policymakers and governments around the world that Donald Trump's decision to withdraw funding, uh, you know, could mean that other countries, potentially China, for better or worse, may have a larger say in the WHO going forward. Um, and it's interesting that Australia's, Australia's position right now is Australia's kind of walking a little bit of a middle ground, saying that it wants to leverage its membership uh, to think about reforming the WHO. But fortunately, uh, it's it said that it's going to keep, keep the funding uh, that it's currently giving. Giving. So I think Australia needs to think quite carefully about what type of reforms it would like to see in the WHO. But I also think, and perhaps more importantly, Australia can't simply go in and change an organisation like the WHO on its own. Uh, it needs to invest in that hard diplomatic work of building international coalitions uh, that are going to support these agencies. So it is nice to see a number, I think, of smaller European countries such as Finland saying they might step up. Um, but I think Australia could play quite a constructive role as a middle power, building a coalition of countries to come out and increase their funding and provide renewed support to the WHO, uh, particularly uh, at this point in time. Christian makes really excellent points. And I think it goes to a broader discussion about the way in which uh, the various crises that we've been experiencing um, over the last four or five years reveal the fragility of different systems. And so we've seen this in the the European Union, um, we've seen it at country level, and now we're seeing it in terms of international institutions. And I think what this does is is create a space for new ways of understanding what we mean by global institutions and what we understand by globalisation and how we think about the role of collaboration. And I think it gives us, and Christian's indicated this with his comments about Australia and the potential role of middle powers, I think it gives us an opportunity to see 
institutions like the WHO and, and, and many, many other global institutions as, as not being um, sort of totemic and um, hegemonic, if you like, but having um, a rather different relationship with um, some of their uh, member countries. Now, Many people will argue that, of course, the WHO is 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 relatively powerless anyway, and I wouldn't dispute that. But I think this does give us an opportunity to really think about when we want to create collaborative institutions, how much power do we want to give them, and in what ways uh, is collaboration to be effective? Because so far we we've tended to focus on the nation state and then the global, um, and I think what we may be seeing is uh, something of a of a realignment and a um, perhaps a, a greater sensitivity to um, regional institutions, for example, the role of, of institutions like ASEAN, which are, are very different, but um, you know, play uh, an important role, um, rather than this sense of uh, we are all global citizens um, and need to sign up to um, a set of, of of principles that that surround that. And so, you know, while I think this is a grave situation, and that there's no question that it's um, posing um, huge problems for uh, the WHO in particular at the moment, I also think that it, it is an opportunity to address some of the questions that people have had about the way in which these global institutions have operated. Helen, you mentioned there are uh, the potential for a realignment where we see perhaps regional organisations playing a greater role. What do you see the role of civil society organisations being within that realignment? Uh, do you see a, a role for civil society organisations engaging more with um, some of the international organisations or is it more those regional institutions that, that you think have a valuable role to play in the future? Well, I think it's one of the remarkable things about civil society organisations is that they've been so present in um, many of these um, institutions, where, wherever they are. So, you know, just to take um, the other case that we've been looking at, the G20, I mean, one of the things that uh, the establishment of the G20 spawned was this range of, of related institutions, one of which is the C20, which is, you know, civil society organisations. And they've been extremely active in trying to influence um, the agenda, how things are discussed, um, the the particular uh, issues facing um, poorer communities, for example, but not just poorer communities. So um, there certainly is an established network and an, an established expectation that civil society organisations will participate. The extent to which they've been effective, though, I think, again, is a, is a, is a really important question. And would they be more effective um, if they were active, particularly at the national and the regional level rather than the global level. Um, I think, again, it's a really contentious point, but I think in a world where we are going to be seeing major realignment um, of relationships and institutions, then um, if I was a civil society organisation, I'd certainly be wondering about where would be the best place to expend my effort. The other bit I think which is interesting, um, and again, Christian's mentioned them in passing, is what all of this means for the role of some of our hugely wealthy philanthropists uh, worldwide. You know, people who like Bill and Melinda Gates, but, you know, there are many more who have um, taken the opportunity to, to step in where uh, nation states have um, either not uh, fulfilled their obligations or 
um, are, are seen to be um, lagging in terms of what's needed. And again, um, I think we're going to be seeing much more of um, serious uh, philanthropists um, making um, a big impact on our global and uh, indeed regional institutions. And again, you know, that um, comes with its own questions about how we make public policy, who has influence over public policy and um, whose voice uh, counts at the end of the day. Christian, on this this issue of the role of philanthropists or or philanthrocapitalists, as they're sometimes referred to, how do you see those actors as um, engaging with some of these fundamentally important issues around responses to to pandemic, the role of international organisations? Do you see um, an, an increasing space for those big philanthropists and what are the benefits and and what are the perhaps warning signs that we should be aware of? Yeah, I I think their role is is going to likely increase, particularly should states like the US create a vacuum globally, but it does raise all types of thorny questions. Um, So on the one hand, we might welcome the money that big philanthropists can bring to help solve a range of problems such as creating vaccines. Uh, But on the other hand, and a lot of people have pointed this out before, it raises big questions around democracy, around who's driving international agendas. Um, And should we be leaving, you know, public health agendas or climate agendas or whatever they happen to be to to be directed by, you know, a a handful of small individuals with deep pockets? So I think there's some very important trade-offs that... um, nation states, that global civil society needs to think through quite carefully before we hand over the international agenda uh, to some of these organisations and some of these individuals. I also wanted to pick up on a really important point that Helen raised, and that was stepping back and thinking about the character or the nature of global institutions going forward, given the disruption we're seeing around the world at the moment, both political and economic. Um, Because At the same time that a lot of these formal institutions uh, like the WHO uh, are coming under criticism, in recent years, international relations scholars have highlighted the fact that actually uh, states have been turning increasingly to informal organisations like the G20. So uh, to be clear, if you think of the WHO, it's it's a formal body, it's it's got a treaty, it's got a permanent secretariat in Geneva, um... And it's got significant funding. If you think of informal bodies by comparison, like the G20, they often don't have any treaty. They often don't have any secretariat. The G20, actually, you can't go and visit the G20. There's no G20 buildings or anything. So these things, these forums, these are much more informal. And states, uh, for a number of years, have been creating quite a few of them. Uh, I think in part because they provide greater flexibility, informality, um, and for a number of national leaders, a lot less bureaucracy. Uh, but again, there's so so informal forums offer a lot, but they also, uh, of course, have less power and less resources to do things. So when uh, states and other actors are thinking about what the future should look like, I think it's important, as Helen said, to think about what type of institutions do we want going forward? Do we want to strengthen existing ones like the WHO? Do we want to think about some of the benefits of informal ones? Do we want to rely more heavily on civil society? I think it's really important right now, as we're seeing some of the rules 
that govern the globe being rewritten, that we step back and think about, well, what what are some of the problems we're trying to solve and what are the best institutions uh, that might solve it? What do they look like? What's their design and what might their membership be? That's such uh, an interesting set of issues that you raise, Christian. And against those issues, we've also seen, um, particularly in the context of COVID-19, nations focusing very heavily on the well-being of their citizens and a push for non-citizens and non-residents to leave. Um, indeed, Trump has even announced that he will sign an executive order to temporarily halt all immigration. So we're seeing, um, you know, this this rise of, of nationalism, if you like, or concern about one's own citizens. And this is in stark contrast to the mandate and the vision of international organisations, particularly the United Nations social agencies, which are much more focused on an idea of global or cosmopolitan citizenship um, and being concerned about the well-being of people across borders as well as within borders. So within this context, Helen, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on what this means for the role of particularly the UN social agencies. Are we likely to see a decline in their importance given all of this? It's entirely possible. Uh, I think there are multiple scenarios that uh, could um, come into to being and I think the biggest risk we face is uh, not believing that we have any control over how we shape those scenarios. And I think that's a big concern at the moment. You have very powerful leaders making some extraordinary uh, decisions. And um, I think we are at risk um, as citizens of the world of uh, just allowing these things to, to go unchallenged because, um, particularly in the case of President Trump, He's been behaving like this since day one of his presidency. Um, so I think there's a bit of a, a concern that I have that uh, we may be losing or missing the opportunity to, to shape uh, a positive um, future from this um, when, you know, so many signs are pointing to, as you say, nationalism, the closing of borders, uh, a preoccupation with um you know, who is and isn't uh, worthy of uh, attention and support. So there's certainly uh, a risk of that. But I also think there's an opportunity um, that that we have. Again, you know, none of us have single identities. You know, we are all uh, members of different communities and we have different kinds of relationships with them. Um, and I think there's so much understanding now of the need for uh, global action in certain areas. Climate change is the most obvious one. Um, although, again, depending on where you are in Australia, it's perhaps not a convincing argument. Um, but um, certainly we're also, I think, much more aware than we ever were about the the risks of um, famine and um, economic collapse in um, countries that appear to be very, very far away from us. Uh, and again, one of the things that the pandemic has demonstrated is uh, both the power and the fragility of global supply chains. And so I think we where we are with this is in need of, of really thinking about what might the range of scenarios be and how do we get to a situation where we can acknowledge that all of these different bits of organi organizational in and institutional architecture may still have a place 
but it might be a slightly different place. And I, for one, given what's coming up, given that we are going to be going into, you know, the biggest recession for 100 years, that that's going to have huge impacts on already marginal uh, communities, then absolutely, I think there will be um, a need for um, UN social agencies and indeed um, social agencies at, at, at national and local level. But um, we have to be clear eyed about how we support them and what we want them to do. Um, and I think that does require us maybe being rather more challenging than, than we've perhaps been prepared to be um, towards some of the, the conduct of, of some of the, the leaders. And I and you'd expect me to make this point, but I think it's important to make the point that, you know, the belligerence and the intransigence and the posturing um, has all come from very powerful um, male leaders. Some of the most effective responses have come from female leaders who, yes, lead much smaller countries, um, but have been able to demonstrate uh, that effective leadership does not require you to um, behave in ways that are um spectacularly destabilizing to um, international institutions and indeed to uh, the potential livelihoods of your neighbouring countries. Certainly we have seen some real differences in leadership styles and I think the the incredible um, empathy that comes across when someone like Jacinda Ardern addresses her country um, compared with some other leaders is, is quite a marked difference. But listeners, we're going to take a short break now. We're going to come back in just a minute or so to pick up on some of these issues and to discuss the role of the G20 in particular in tackling some of these enormous challenges. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back. I still have Dr. Christian Downey and Professor Helen Sullivan with me, not here in my bedroom that I'm podcasting from today, uh, but joining us remotely. So now I'd like to turn our attention to the Group of 20 or the G20. And we've already started to to talk a little about the role of the G20 in responding to COVID-19 and some of the criticisms. The G20 is formed by the heads of states and the bank governors from 19 nations around the world, plus the European Union. The grouping's agenda became more ambitious in the wake of the global financial crisis. But it's unlike the World Health Organization, as Christian has already noted, in that it doesn't have a permanent secretariat or a permanent staff or bureaucracy. So Christian, 
What are some of the benefits and downfalls of this particular constellation when it comes to responding to global crisis, such as disease outbreaks? Yeah, well, the G20, I think, as I mentioned, is a a really interesting beast because uh, unlike the WHO and and other organisations, it is very informal and there's no, as I said, there's no buildings, there's no permanent staff, there's no formal documents or anything. In fact, uh, back in 2014, some people might remember Australia hosted the G20 in Brisbane and, and at the time I was working in government on it. And, you know, it's a bit of a shock when you first start working on the G20 because, uh, there is this overriding question of, you know, how does it get anything done when uh, there isn't all the normal things that you would expect when you say the word organisation? Uh, so there's always been these questions about what's the point of the G20? What does it achieve? Um, but I think there's two key ways that the G20 has power or that it can get things done. A big part of the answer, as you alluded to there, in your, just as you alluded to then, is is the sheer power of its members. So the G20 packs enormous economic punch. Um, you essentially, you've got 20 of the largest economies in the world, more or less, based on GDP. Um, and so whatever these countries do and say has a big influence right around the world. But second way, and I think the way that, uh, that it has influence and a way that we often don't think about uh, is its role in enlisting or enrolling other organisations to do work on its behalf. And so that might be in the global financial crisis back in 2007, 8, 9, we saw the G20 play a really important role in enlisting the International Monetary Fund, the Financial Stability Board, the OECD and others to do work to stabilise the financial system, to rewrite some of the rules around banking regulation and so on. And it was the G20 that helped bring together those organisations, get them working together on the same page and set up uh, the necessary uh, governance infrastructure. So a big way the G20 uh, can play a role is in steering other organisations. When it doesn't do these things and when its members don't agree, when the nation states that are part of it uh, are in disagreement, uh, then it can be a rather dysfunctional organisation. I think we're seeing a little bit of that now. Helen spoke about, you know, the disruptive leadership of President Trump in recent years. And I think that is one of the reasons that the G20 has failed thus far to play a more active role uh, in enlisting the WHO and in bringing organisations together on the to deal with COVID-19 because the US has taken such a disruptive position um, given its hostility towards the WHO. And this is nothing new, of course. We've seen this exact thing play out in climate change over recent years where G20 attempts to come to a common agreement on climate change, even on something as basic as do we support the Paris Agreement, it's been the US blocking that. Um, So we've seen that in the G20 and we've seen that in the smaller grouping of the G7, which operates in a very, with a very similar, uh, similar way of operating. Christian, the the G20 met earlier in March and also on the 15th of April to discuss their response to coronavirus, and they pledged quite a lot of funding, um, up to US $1 trillion, to the IMF Crisis Fund, and pledged to work together to ensure the global supply of medical equipment. Now, this all sounds like a, a very 
positive response on paper. But how will this be put into practice? And how do you see the role of the IMF in responding to the crisis? Given that in the past, the IMF has often been heavily criticised for its response to crises, uh, for failing to take full account of the human dimensions of the crisis, but to be overly focused on issues like economic stabilisation. Well, yeah, it's really interesting to see how the G20 and other organisations like the IMF are going to respond. As you said, we've seen the G20 come up with some, I guess, big rhetoric, but uh, thus far, I guess, it's been a bit shorter on the substance. Um, and, and as I said earlier, that this is a big test for the G20. Can it play this role as a crisis committee? So right now, I think it needs to back up its words with action. It's put for these communiques. Uh, leaders have met, at least virtually, um, given they're not able to travel to Riyadh, as Saudi Arabia is hosting the G20 this year. So leaders have met virtually. We've seen health ministers meet. We've seen more recently energy ministers meet in response to some of the energy issues facing the world. Uh, but we need to start to see action now. And, and as I mentioned, one of the ways that the G20 can have a role is by bringing in other organisations like the IMF, like the WHO. But the problem is likely to be that the same the same politics between countries that's um, impacting on the potential for the G20 to play its role, particularly between the US and China, will filter down into other organisations like the IMF. Um, And I think this is one thing that we have to take into account when we're thinking about global issues and global governance, uh, like COVID-19, like climate change. These are global problems and they require global cooperation. But more often than not, what happens at the global level is actually determined by domestic politics. When nation states turn up at these forums or instruct the IMF board to do X, Y, or Z, it's largely determined by the domestic politics of those countries. So while the domestic politics of countries like the US in particular remains incredibly dysfunctional, uh, we're not going to see these countries step forward and provide leadership in the G20. So I think we need to we need to think not only about the global level but but think about well, what can we do at the domestic level as well uh, to improve uh, what these countries are doing and what they can take when they step up to the international stage that these types of international negotiations have often been referred to as a two level game uh, that there's the game at the domestic level and then there's the game at the international level um, so I, I think we can't lose sight of what's happening at the domestic level and how that influences what's going to come out of the G20, what's going to come out of the IMF. Um, But just like this will be a big test for the G20, it will be a big test for the IMF as well, uh, given that we're facing uh, potentially the biggest economic shock since the Great Depression, or if not greater. Helen, Australia is a member of the G20. Um, How do you see domestic politics in Australia um, influencing Australia's role within the G20 um, and indeed beyond? And what do you think the the Australian government could be doing within the forum to enhance the collective response to this pandemic? It's a great question. And um, I think Christian's absolutely right that, you know, what happens at the domestic level is massively influential in the way in which countries then go into negotiating um, whatever institutions, whether they're regional or global. Um, Australia, I think, um, both has an opportunity, as Christian's mentioned, as a, as a middle power in terms of um, trying to uh, bring other uh, countries of, of of similar size and and influence together to 
to think about alternatives and to think about how um, institutions like the G20 can be influenced to to operate in a in a way that is more oriented towards the the global public good. Um, the problem for Australia, though, of course, is that it is it in itself uh, something of a um, uh, pariah is probably too strong a word, but you know it has a reputation, particularly in the context of climate change, um, of not being um, a terribly good global citizen. Um, and so I think Australia, you know, is is stuck, and Australians' leaders are, are stuck in trying to figure out um, how it is that they. Um, promote what is you know it's is really important you know we do need to have some substance to our um global institutions that that are charged with managing things like pandemics you know how do you do that when you are yourself um a country that is 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 not been um known for necessarily um signing up to or being enthusiastic about um some of the demands that might be made of you in the context of of climate change so I think Australia is uh, having going to have to work some things out uh, in this regard. The the pessimist in me uh, would suggest that um, the focus is is much more likely to be on you know how how do we uh, reconcile uh, what's going on with COVID nineteen and our um, domestic future. Um, particularly given all the extraordinary measures that have been put in place that, um, you know, some people have been arguing for for a long time, increases in, um, uh, you know, benefit payments and and so on. Um, but that also comes with um, a resumption of politics that so far has been suspended. Um, but, you know, Australians' politics is not uh, necessarily that healthy and, um, it is faced with, in the context of of, of one nation and other uh, significant politicians, um, some serious uh, challenges in terms of of what kind of domestic policy can get through, let alone um, how it can then represent itself on the international stage. So, uh, the pessimist in me is quite worried that Australia will just turn inward um, and will um, resort to. Thinking about well, what's what's left for Australia? Tourism is is decimated. Higher education is in trouble. What's left? Well, we've still got stuff that we dig out of the ground. Um, that might be um, a really important opportunity for Australia. But of course, that goes against um, some of the demands that we're um, we're being asked to respond to in the context of climate change. The optimist in me thinks that. Um, Australia does also have, um, a, you know, a, a history and a, and a reputation of, of of being able to act effectively as a as a middle power, um, and that given that these are such extraordinary circumstances, um, that it, it's entirely possible uh, that it will um, conceive of its role in the way that that Christian has suggested. Um, I'm. I have to say I'm a little sceptical about that, but I would like to think that um, that would be a stance that uh, that Australia would take. Of course, Australia also has to manage its own relationships with China, for example, which again, this morning on the um, the news, you know, this uh, these little flare-ups that, that keep happening about, you know, um, is Peter Dutton, in this case, um, you know, too allied to a particular perspective and what does that mean for our relationship with China? I mean, all of these things that, that, that keep happening, to some extent, they're the stuff of normal diplomatic relations, but to a great 
greater extent in a, in a crisis context, they become uh, much more significant and much more symbolic of, of how relationships could actually go pretty badly wrong. As we draw the this conversation towards a close, um, Christian, I wanted to ask you what you think we have learned from this crisis. And of course, we're still in the midst of the crisis, so it's difficult to be drawing clear lessons. But what do you think that we might be learning from this crisis about how international organisations can improve their responses to crises in the future, including crises like the COVID-19 pandemic, um, assuming that this may not be the last pandemic that the world sees? Yeah, look, I think it's it's an interesting question and, and uh, thinking about what some of the lessons might be at this early stage is, is difficult. But one that I've been thinking about in the context of climate change, which is, is an area I've been doing some work, is that when politicians, when political leaders, uh, leaders of international organisations, whoever they might be, listen to scientists, listen to the expert knowledge out there, the outcomes can be pretty good. And we're seeing that in Australia. Australia's relative performance in trying to flatten the curve and deal with the COVID-19 pandemic has been pretty good compared to a whole range of other countries. The countries uh, that haven't listened to the science, that have kind of ignored uh, what epidemiologists and others have been warnings, particularly the US and to a more limited extent, the UK have seen much worse outcomes. So one lesson that I've taken away from this is that the more we can get science communication through to political leaders at the global level or the national level in a more unfiltered way, uh, the better outcomes we may see. And when I say a more unfiltered way, what I mean is that when we see science contested by vested interests, lobbying groups, be they fossil fuel companies or big pharmaceutical companies, uh, we see typically policy outcomes that aren't uh, as in the in the public interest, uh, that aren't as desirable as we might like. So one lesson I would like to that hope that political leaders take forward is the importance of listening to the experts, of listening to this case, in this case, to the scientists that know what they're talking about in the health space and hopefully in the climate space and many other policy domains where the world is facing significant challenges right now. Always excellent advice to listen to the experts. Um, Helen, I wanted to, to ask a final question of you and to shift the focus just a little, um, but to uh, a related issue. The international organisations that we've spoken about today and UN agencies, um, international financial institutions more broadly, have spoken over the past couple of decades about the importance of gender equality and of women's empowerment. We see one of the Sustainable Development Goals, Goal 5, focused on those issues. We are seeing increasing concerns and indeed increasing evidence emerging in the context of COVID-19 that women's caring roles are um, becoming far greater, uh, that particular burdens around managing responses to the crisis on a day-to-day -day level are falling to women. And some have gone so far as to say that this pandemic will set feminism back by some decades. I wanted to ask you what role you think international organisations need to be playing both now and moving forward and out of the crisis to ensure that we don't see a real slip back on gender equality? That's a hugely important issue and one that um, I'm not sure international organisations have really 
got to grips with yet because we are all experiencing this in a way that um, perhaps we uh, hadn't expected and maybe were overly optimistic about. Um, so it does seem to me that that international organisations, whether they're you know informal like the G20 or um, formally codified like uh, the UN, absolutely have to hold on to those commitments to not just gender equality but equality more broadly, um, and the need to pay attention to uh, the impact of both the pandemic, but then the recession that is going to come afterwards on uh, the most marginalised, the most vulnerable. So absolutely, this must be something that uh, is gets serious attention. And I think all international organisations need to be constantly aware. And even ones where, um, I mean, Christian talked about the um, the financial standards board, you know, even those institutions, which maybe most people have never heard of, um, but have a, a, a particular role that, you know, people may not think uh, has anything to do with gender equality. I think anything to do with finance, how we understand finance, how resources are, are made and, and allocated, every institution has to think about what are the consequences of their actions in um, influencing uh, gender equality or gender inequality, um, and I think that's that's going to be a big ask for some organisations. Other organisations whose raison d'etre is to to focus on these things really need to be doubling down on their efforts. The challenge, of course, is to come back to uh, some of our um, country leaders. That is that some of our country leaders are not great um, at supporting and promoting gender equality or indeed any other kind of equality. So um, both the the need for, for attention in this area, I think, is, is going to be heightened. The appetite um, amongst many leaders, I think, uh, will, will certainly be diminished because um, you can certainly see how uh, Promoting gender equality um, would not be a priority for for people who see it as as simply something that might cost them votes. There's been so much food for thought in this discussion, and uh, we've identified so many challenges, but also pathways forward. I could certainly continue this conversation for much, much longer, but sadly, we do need to draw to a close now. I wanted to thank you both, Christian and Helen, so much for joining us today and for sharing your insights and expertise. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. And listeners, I hope that you've enjoyed this discussion as much as I have. Please feel free to leave questions and comments or suggestions for future episodes at apps. Policy Forum on Twitter, or join the pod group on Facebook, Policy Forum Pod. And if you're enjoying our podcasts, please do subscribe to us on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favourite podcasts from. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. Until then, stay healthy, stay happy, and look after one another. But for now, it's bye-bye from me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.